a moment of pulpit privilege, I would like to make two announcements. One is I highly commend that if you are able to please sign up for our wonderful church retreat scheduled for April 13th and 14th. Neely Tao will be our guest speaker. She's uh, really nationally known, but certainly citywide known for her wonderful uh, teaching way. Uh, the Reverend Tao will be there as well as it will be a congregational fellowship time for all ages and fun, 13th and 14th, and it's really just one 24-hour or a little more period. Uh, please take that opportunity to retreat together as we join uh, our community in fellowship apart from this place. And also next week on uh, Palm Sunday at 9.30, we, for those of you who have not had a chance to participate in the music director Holy Conversations, you are invited to Bittinger Hall. Uh, where you will be able to sip coffee from Holy Grounds and have holy conversations with folk on the search committee to ask your sense of how we do worship and in terms of our music, maybe your uh, highlights and maybe some rep uh, preferences that you might have regarding music and so forth. If you've not had a chance for that conversation, please come to Bittinger next week at 9.30 for just that. Let me ask you what it would take for a person to give up everything that they believe in, everything that they had come to understand regarding their faith in God, their whole structure and walk of faith, to turn their back on it and to walk away, even to disclaim it publicly and work against it. What would it take for that? I've seen it happen with tragedy when good Christian folk have faced a terrible loss or a series of disappointments or heartaches. They become so angry and demoralized with God, they lose their faith completely. I've seen it happen with education. You go off to college, you take a religion and literature class, you listen to the professor explain the Bible in a way you didn't hear in Sunday school, and all of a sudden everything you thought you learned in church goes up in smoke, and you walk away from it from this new academic perspective. I'm talking about something else than that, how, about how something brand new, so powerfully important, so powerfully positive breaks in on you and reveals to you that everything you believed before about your faith is wrong. That in fact, your whole way of life was wrong compared to this new revelation. Instead of diminishing your faith, it in fact adds to it exponentially. You see, this is what the Apostle Paul is writing to his friends in the church in Philippi about. His own experience of coming face to face with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And for Paul, it was also not just something that happened once, but an ongoing process, so full of gain for him that he was willing to count everything he lost as nothing compared to it. Apparently, this church, this young church, was being influenced by some Jewish preachers who said that they, traditionalist Jewish preachers, who said that they needed to reclaim some of the old Jewish traditions, like 
circumcision and other worship rituals in order to be considered truly in the faith. And so Paul writes to them and says, no, you do not have to live up to some traditional belief system or way of doing things or even circumcision. Those traditional fundamentals are not what make you in God's favor. There's no grading system, Paul writes. And if there were, if you were going to match his credentials against anyone, his would win. Here now the readings from Philippians 3, 1 through 14. Paul writes, Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is not troublesome to me, for, and for you it is a safeguard. Beware of the dogs. That's who he's calling these preachers. He, he was never short on. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, because, and beware of those who mutilate the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, not them, who worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. That for Paul, living in the flesh, was doing whatever we need to do in order to get God's love. We have no confidence in the flesh, even though I too have reason for confidence in the flesh. For if anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, blameless. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that. I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and regard them as rubbish. You can imagine what the literal Greek word for that is. Rubbish, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from living according to the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that's based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or have already reached the goal but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the heavenly call in Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. They called him Coach. No one knew his real name, only nickname, Coach. Which was ironic because he couldn't even coach himself in the rudimentary elements of life. The whole town knew him as Coach because it kept their distance from this derelict. It was 
a word, a name of derision and ridicule and scorn. And yet in this small Alabama town where gossip was the main currency of wealth, this southern Downton Abbey, the victims of the gossip were never allowed to forget that everyone had their number. There was actually very little history about Coach that anyone knew or cared about. All anyone knew was that he was always around part of the landscape like that Confederate soldier statue that rested near the, uh, near the offices of the judge. He was stoop-shouldered and had a stubble of beard on his face. His eyes were wed, red and swollen. His face was messed up. His hair was dirty. He was a wino you could spot a mile away. And he was always around. You could see him in the morning on the way to school, longing and lounging on the steps of the courthouse under the shed near the cotton yard, shuffling when he walked, as they said, a meaningless kind of shiftless, spineless, good-for-nothing sort of person that parents would point to uh, for their children to see as an example of how a good life goes bad and also of the evils of alcohol. Still, he was part of the local color. Like Otis in the Andy Griffin show, he would earn money by running errands for the lawyers at the courthouse a dollar or two every time. He would earn enough money to buy a meal, and if he really earned enough money, he wouldn't eat the meal, he would just buy liquor. Drinking was the point of his life. Everything he did was to support it. Even still, if you met him down at the cotton yard, he might entice you into a game of checkers. And nine times out of ten, no, 99 times out of 100, he would beat you, which meant that no one wanted to play coach in checkers because then they would have to admit they had been beaten by a half-drunk checkers player. There was no sentimentality about him around town. No one ever asked how he survived, what demons he must be fighting, what happened to make him the way he was. Nobody ever seemed to wonder how a man this smart in checkers, even inebriated, could turn out this way. Nobody cared how he could retain his wit and cunning after all he'd been through. It was beyond any possibility that anyone could look at him with any respect and admiration that anyone would even touch him with the least, least bit of affection. They just called him Coach. And he lived down at the shack near the railroad station. And they knew all they had to do was to throw him a couple of bucks to make sure they didn't connect. Coach is drunk again. Yep. And we're all better off because... We're not, and everything's right with the world. That's why it came as such a shock to those good townspeople the one time Coach stepped out of character. It happened near the end of August when the tent revival came through annually after the cotton had been put up and the crops were uh, through doing their business and folk had some time on their hands and the and the emotional and spiritual fervor came together for one great conversion to cover the lack of all the daily conversions that had not yet taken place. 
one August night, coach of all people, when the call came for sinners to go forth down the aisle, fall at the feet of Jesus in order to be forgiven of their sins, washed clean in the blood of Jesus, the preacher proclaimed, and start a new life. Coach went, stumbling as he did, in order to get saved. He was baptized in the dunking pool. He was given a clean shave and a new pair of clothes, and his whole life started over. The next morning, everybody was talking about it at the barber shop and at the beauty shop, which meant that in an hour, the whole town knew. Then you would see him standing at the courthouse, no longer slouched over, but back up straight underneath the tree, out talking to folk with a distinguished face and an almost precious light in his eye. The stubble shaved, no longer shuffling as if he had truly been given his life back. The longer he went sober, the more they talked about him. How could it be? How could this happen, they asked. How could Coach, of all people, get religion? And if Coach can get religion and be changed, after all, he was the one stable feature in town, then, then that might mean everybody else will have to change too. We now are suspect to change. And it made the whole town uneasy and anxious because of it. Soon the conversation moved to predicting how long his sobriety would last. Placing bets on it, the men had a pool because if it was real and lasted, this meant that the whole town was then open to change again. Anything was possible. And of course you know it didn't last. Day by day, the people would come and look at Coach to see if he was still sober, still had the light in his eye, his chin still shaved, his back straight. They might even say to him, now that you got your own life back, Coach, maybe we can get you to start coaching our children some. It was a joke. You know, Coach, some people are saying you won't last, but I believe in you. Soon under those stares and questions and comments, the pressure grew until one day he went back to form, bought a bottle, climbed in his little shelter, and gave into it. And when he came out, the shoulders were slumped again, the beard back, the feet shuffling. You could almost hear the relief of the townspeople that, Things were now back to good old order. Well, the coach got religion, went down for the altar call and got religion, but it didn't last. That's the trouble with all this revival stuff. It just doesn't last. But you see, they were wrong. The trouble with coach wasn't that he had gotten converted in a revival. The trouble was that he hadn't been converted deeply enough or often enough. That he had not been converted day by day. And the trouble was that he had no real supportive community to care for him and to hold him accountable. Instead, he had a community that he lived with that refused to believe that any kind of change like this was possible because 
If it is, what does that mean for us? It's just easier to believe that you can sometimes get them out of the gutter for a week or two or a month, but once in the gutter, they're just always going to be in the gutter. The trouble with Coach lay in the mistaken notion that life is set, that there are no series of conversions and changes and daily revivals one step at a time, full of possibility that can completely turn your life around. Therefore, he had no community of hope, support, and accountability. Friends, this is the genius of the Christian faith, that we are meant to live a lifetime of fresh starts, that every day the world is new and that we are not meant to take each new day with the old failures and baggage and burdens of the day before, that God makes this new day fresh, anew for our hearts and minds and souls. The promise of our faith is that we don't get stuck with the burden on our backs. Not with what we've done that we shouldn't have done or not done that we should have. And this awareness comes to us as we come to know Christ who knows us most fully in the power of his suffering and resurrection. The Bible teaches two things, basically, this most greatest story composed, one that we are usually at war with ourselves, with this inner struggle with our demons, a kind of civil war with ourselves that we know we do not live up to the image of God in us, the full image of God and the fullness of love that God has called us to live into. We know that. It's our dilemma compounded by the fact that the more we try to make up for it, the more righteous and self-righteous we become. We might even deceive ourselves into thinking that we are actually measuring up to this. Like those people in Coach's town who needed Coach to stay a derelict so they could consider themselves better than he was in all their Sunday-going goodness. The Bible is clear that the truth is that we are all derelicts. We are all derelicts when it comes to measuring up to our true potential of love. The second thing the Bible insists upon is that it is exactly at that place where we fail to live up to our best selves that that is where the love and grace of God calls upon us to start a new day. Not alone, but with others who are battling with the same war within themselves, who understand and support all those who are willing to struggle and, and, and start a fresh day too, a day with them and with each other. This is what we're doing here in the church. This is what we do when we stand up and say the confession of faith, first thing after the first hymn, we lift up our condition and then we are given that incredible assurance that all things are made new, washed clean, afresh. Friends, claim the words of Paul. All of that which he worked so hard to gain, he counts as rubbish 
compared to the surprising gain of knowing Christ, to gain Christ and be found in him, a righteousness not based on pedigree or works or anything else, but only because God loves us. Which is why in the end he, he ends up these words with the powerfully hopeful words that, that we have to rest our own lives on each day. Not that I have already obtained this or reached the goal. For Paul, there were no Christians, only people striving to become Christians. I have not already obtained this or reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So brothers and sisters, do not lose hope. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, let us press on toward the goal of the heavenly call of God in Jesus Christ together, one day at a time, a new day each time. Amen. Let us bring forth the gifts of our lives and our labors. <laughs>